1: Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Law Pod. Queens University, we are making history today. Um, my name is Shirley Alcius, and I am a final year LLB student here at Queens. In today's episode, also making history, is Professor Phil Scratton, and we will be talking to him about mandatory life sentencing. Well, hi, Phil, and welcome to LawPod. We're going to talk about a lot of things, including some things like the adverse living conditions in prisons, purpose of punishment for long-term prisoners, and your own experiences of visiting and working with prisoners across the UK. To get things started, I'd like to start our discussion by talking about the recent news about prison conditions in the UK. A report published on the 19th of January by the Inspectorate of Prisons called Conditions in HMP Liverpool – Squalid, with at least 17 inmates suicides since 2011. In other recent headlines, self harm and suicide rates are also alarmingly high in HMP Nottingham. What do you think it says about a society that these conditions are allowed to persist in the 21st century? And where do you think the blame lies?
0: I think the answer to the first question is that uh, the situation is appalling and it has been appalling for a long time. Okay. We used to talk about a crisis in prisons. A medical term crisis means that you go through an illness and it comes to a point, and then you either die or it becomes resolved. Um, When you have long-term malaise, like we have in UK prisons, then you can't call it a crisis any longer. It's Mm institutionalised, and it's been there for many generations, and it's persisted to a point now of no return. Where the blame and responsibility lies, I think, is a much more complex problem, and one that I hope we can actually discuss and get into. The first thing to say is that I went into Her Majesty's prison, Liverpool, when it was called Walton Jail. Okay. I was uh, just graduating, um, so it's the early 1970s. In those days, I would be wearing my standard-issue waistcoat uh, okay. and uh, my right-to-work badge and collarless shirt and my hair tied back. <laughs> okay. Those were the days. Um, and I was teaching a course uh, in prison with long-term prisoners. And the treatment I received on entry into the prison was outrageous. I mean, I was made to wait so that they missed half of the class when I was escorted across by two prison guards. They insulted me all the way, not directly to my face, but to each other talking about me. And then when we got into the class, only half the class had been unlocked. And that's when I realized for the very first time, it's my first time in prison, that the guards have immense discretion on how they behave They have immense discretion on who they unlock and when they unlock. There was no good reason that those guys hadn't been released for the class. And of course, for them, it was the highlight of the week. They were getting out, and they were being together, and they were going to have a class. But what also concerned me, um, and the reason I'm talking about this, is that halfway through the class, what was left of the class, uh, we were asked to stand uh, stand up and uh, exit the room. And a guy came in with a chemical uh, canister strapped to his back. He had um, a mask over his mouth and goggles. And he sprayed the room on the floor. And the reason he sprayed the room was because the prison was full of rats and cockroaches. And these were the conditions that people were being held in the early 70s in Walton Prison, HMP. HMP. Liverpool Prison, a Victoria Prison, Victorian Prison, like so many other prisons in the UK, they were condemned and they were supposed to be pulled down and replaced by modern prisons um, in the next 20 years. In other words, by 1990, that never happened. And the report that uh, we read last week on that prison um, has more or less come up with exactly the same criticisms that were relevant in the early 70s. The only difference is that prisoners now have in-cell sanitation. Uh, but the in-cell sanitation is appalling. I mean, imagine sleeping with your head close to a toilet. The toilet has no seat. It's broken. The plumbing isn't working properly. The stench is appalling. It was the first thing I noticed when I first went into Walton prison was the stench. And you're living in those squalid conditions, Um if you look at the photographs that were released in the report on, uh, on Walton or Liverpool last week, uh, the back end of the inspector's report has a set of photographs. And if you look at them, what you can see is outside of the windows, and three, the, the cells are three-tiered in this Victorian prison, there's a, a, a kind of runnel on the outside of the wall of the cells okay. um, in the yard. And you'll see newspapers wrapped and thrown there, heaps of them. That is excrement. That is guys okay. unable to live with the stench in their own cell, going to the toilet into a newspaper and throwing it out of the window.
1: And this is currently at HMP? That so photograph
0: is in the report last week. But is now, that a,
1: of, a current, that's of the current situation at the Liverpool? Yes, okay. that
0: is the current situation. And that was the situation at the time. And at the time, a group of prisoners every week would go around outside the, the inner wall and they would shovel up all this excrement and the newspaper. And I hope your listeners won't mind me using the phrase. They called it the shit detail. Now, that was the appalling conditions then. And what is remarkable is not only that that prison is still open when it, should have, when it was condemned, but that those conditions are similar today. Now, if we strip it back from there and we look at the conditions that prevail on each given day, and it's the same here in the north of Ireland, if we look at the the conditions in terms of why, when people go to prison, what is expected of them. What is expected is that they should have the opportunity to develop educationally, to develop skills and to work towards release so that they come out of prison in a better state than they went in. The phrase is rehabilitation. So prisons are not just for punishment. They are for rehabilitation. But if you look here in the north and you also look in Liverpool, 50% plus of all prisoners don't have any training or any work while they're in prison. This means they're locked down in their cells for 23 hours out of 24. Nobody is sent to prison to be put into solitary confinement, yet they are the conditions that they serve their, their sentences. Not all prisoners, but a high number of prisoners. This is completely inappropriate, particularly when we look at the figures that well over 60% of people who go into prison have a mental health issue. Now, it's mm-hmm. hard enough to get mental health support in the community, but inadequate mental health support in prison is... Is 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 a death watch, and we can see that in the high number of deaths in prison uh, by suicide, people taking their own lives. And I'm a founder member in 1980 of Inquest, which examines and uh, reports on deaths in custody, and the 17 suicides since 2011. I'm not saying they're all avoidable. Some of those men in Walton Prison, Liverpool Prison, might have taken their own lives had they been in the community. But one thing I know for sure is that the conditions in which they're held, the poor medical treatment, the lack of psychological and psychiatric support, makes it absolutely clear to me that if they go in with a serious mental health condition, it will worsen. And then what we have is deaths in custody. That is completely inappropriate, and I've given expert evidence here in uh, in Northern Ireland, and two deaths in custody, and I'm just preparing another one now. Okay. And in each of those deaths, both of whom incidentally were women, in each of those deaths, of course, the women took their own lives. But following my evidence and being examined in the in the inquest, um, in the inquest doc, being examined in the court, I mean, um, by Uh, barristers for the prison service the jury still found that although the deaths were suicide they were avoidable deaths and they criticized heavily the prisons so where does this leave us in terms of 21st century imprisonment in the UK and we have to remember that England and Wales is a separate jurisdiction to Scotland which is a separate jurisdiction to Northern Ireland Uh, but in England and Wales we imprison the highest rate of, uh, at the highest rate of imprisonment in in Europe. I'm talking about former Western European states. And that level of imprisonment in in inadequate prisons is completely unacceptable when so many of the people who are in prison should be having their condition, their situation um, sorted in the community.
1: Thank you for that, Phil. That was very insightful. Do you think the prison system is to blame for failing to address the mental ill health of prisoners? And or do you think prisons have a duty to step up to improve the well-being of prisoners? Mm -hmm.
0: I, I think it's really important to distinguish between blame and responsibility. Okay. You know, blame is something that we do in everyday life when somebody, you know, yeah. one of our children, brothers, sisters, mother, father does something and we, we blame them for it. Responsibility is about responsibility that the state has um, for the well-being of all of its citizens, whoever okay. they are and whatever they've done, wherever they live, whatever their age is. And responsibility is absolutely clear that the health and well-being of every prisoner individually should be addressed and looked after and, can, and the major concern of the prison service. There is a really interesting issue in what you've raised. A lot of people would assume that what I'm saying is that people go into prison and then they become mentally ill I'm, or they go into prison with a mental illness, I mm-hmm. mean, and then, they, uh, and then that worsens. I'm not saying that. Okay. Some people, that's true. Some people have serious mental health conditions, and they uh, are not necessarily committed to prison. They're put into mental health institutions, uh, secure secure prisons. Um, but what I'm arguing very strongly, and we have we can demonstrate this across in, across all of the jurisdictions, is that because of the serious conditions, because of the lack of welfare support, and because of the lack of constructive Um, activities for prisons that help with what we would call rehabilitation they go into prison obviously down Mm -hmm. depressed fed up miserable but that turns very soon into a serious mental health condition mental ill health isn't you either have it or you don't it's it it, it's gradated You, you you can have um We all at some point in our lives suffer, I have myself, from mild depression. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that mild depression is exacerbated by death or other issues that go on in our lives. What I'm saying is that if you go into prison and you're in a depressed state, then if you are treated inhumanely, if you are not given constructive activity, if your um, health um, needs are not met, then the issue will become very soon that that becomes a serious condition. So it's not saying that the prison is responsible for all mental ill health. What it is saying is it's responsible for quite a significant proportion of mental ill health, but of the worsening situation. Let's just take that back to the Victorian times and criminologists like me in those days, (laughs) in the early days of criminology, what they were arguing. Yes, they said, Prison primarily uh, has to address the offence. So you're going to prison for punishment. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that the deprivation of your liberty, taking away your freedom, is the first issue. It's about paying back to society for something you've done wrong. And the idea that you lose your liberty commensurate to the and in proportion to the crime you committed, however, that's the length of your sentence, um, will actually be seen as the punishment. The second issue is that it's a deterrence, that it is supposed to say to wider society, if you do this, if you commit this act, if you commit this criminal act, Uh, you'll go to prison. So therefore, it is deterring others. That's the second the second principle Uh, and the third principle is that it has to be proportionate that it that it should fit the crime in other words the proportionality means that you get given a sentence in proportion to the seriousness of the crime and that is rolled out across society so if you commit the offense in Nottingham or London or Belfast you will receive the same kind of band if you like of, 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 of liberty deprivation But the other issue, and this came out of the Victorian philanthropists and the whole development of what is prison for question, is that it should be rehabilitative, that you should leave the prison in a better state to cope with the world around you, because otherwise what you create is a revolving door. If people come out still poor, still aggressive, still paining, still hurt, even more depressed, How on earth are they going to cope with the society in which they live, particularly if the society is vindictive towards them? They can't get a job. They have no income. There is resentment in the community for the crime. And I'm not talking about very serious crime. I'm just talking Mm -hmm. about ordinary crime that they, they committed. So the issue of rehabilitation became central a central plank in the development of imprisonment in uh, the 20th century. And what I'm arguing very strongly in all the work I've done, the books I've written, the research I've done, the amount of time I've spent in prison, is that the prison is the last place in the world for rehabilitation. Okay. For all of the reasons we see in, in, in Liverpool and also in the report last week on Nottingham. And I might add, The incredibly critical report on MacGabery here in Northern Ireland, that was only two years ago, and the chief inspector said it was the worst prison he had ever been in. He said the conditions in MacGabery are Dickensian. Now, that is a remarkable statement because that takes us right back to that Victorian period when all the reform began. So what is being argued, and it's not one that's easy to win because most people in society say, yeah, lock them up, throw away the key. But let's think about the majority of people who are in prison. They're not those people who've committed these heinous crimes that we read about, that we see celebrated almost on television on all of these crime shows. The vast majority of people in prison are people like you and me. I miss prison by a whisker. A lot of the guys I grew up with in working class Liverpool and women went to prison. Hmm. And I committed similar offences. Okay, And now I'm a professor of criminology. Now, how does that work out? Or people say, oh, that's you. That's your resilience. That's because you saw the light. You saw a different way. No, I didn't. I was in the right place at the right time. And I was lucky. They had the same parenting. They had the same background that I had and they were unlucky, and they didn't get those opportunities. And I often say to prisoners, they because a lot of people smoke in prison and they mm-hmm. do their old roll-ups, I often yeah. say to them, the difference between you and me is a cigarette paper thin. Mm. Simple as that.
1: You mentioned prison being the last place for rehabilitation. Is there a case to be made that long-term sentencing serves as an important deterrent function in keeping the rest of society safe from the most dangerous offenders?
0: I can answer it very briefly. I mean, I could go into it in great detail, and if I went into it in great detail, that too would be a podcast <laughs> on its own. Okay. But the way I'll answer it is to say that all the international literature, whether it's European literature, it's literature from here or, or, or England and Wales, or it's the United States literature. And remember, the United States is the most punitive of all... Of, of all um, uh, Jurisdictions. Yes. Well, there are several jurisdictions. There are over fifty jurisdictions yeah. in the United States. But you know, it is it is the most severe uh, in 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 Western democracy. I think the. Current figures run at um, seven hundred prisoners in prison to every hundred thousand of the population generically, and that's even more in the deep south proportionately, yeah. whereas we run at here in in northern Ireland less than a hundred um, to a hundred thousand, and in the UK about a hundred and forty, and that's more or less the same throughout Europe. So you know, in that in 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 that situation, I think it's really important to. To say that the notion of deterrence is clearly doesn't work. I mean, you know, yeah. the idea that you go to prison uh, and that you will be deterred from further punishment, when all the things I have said uh, obtain, um, that you, you know, you you're not going to come out in a better state than you went in, uh, and in the United States and in all of the other Western democracies other than the Scandinavian societies, uh, to 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 get to the um, to get to the core of that question, is that deterrence does not work. There is no study at all that has been studied and that has been published in the contemporary period that demonstrates in any way that deterrence works. Now, I could go into all of those studies, but I don't need to. Just saying that is sufficient weight for me, uh, as well as all my own experience. I mean, I've been going in prisons for over 40 years. I think some people would quite like me to be locked up in one (laughs) for for, for the next 40 if I could live that long. But the point that's really significant is that all of the studies demonstrate that deterrence fails. Nobody is deterred from stealing from a shop today by the threat of going to prison. If they are poor, if they have no money, nobody is going to to, to uh, be deterred today from committing an act of violence against their partner. It's usually a man on a woman. Okay. By a by a prison sentence. What we have to understand are the dynamics of those relationships, the dynamics of poverty within our society. We have to understand the complexity of the way we live. You know, for example, I use two examples. Poverty comes about because of inadequate access to work and to, to housing and to good health care and to child care poverty is induced in our society in the same way as wealth is developed within our society mm-hmm. so crimes that involve those kinds of you know that 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 are material crimes they are constructed out of the unequal distribution within our society not in all cases but in the vast majority that's why people steal okay that was came home to me very early in my life when a boy was caned in front of me in the school and in front of all the boys in the school, age nine, on both hands and on his backside, and he was caned because he was stealing biscuits. He was stealing biscuits to feed his brother, to feed his brother and sisters, seven of them, who mm. were poor. I've worked on play schemes where I've seen children scavenging in the bins to feed themselves and their loved ones, their their siblings at lunchtime. Now, when you have poverty running at that level, whatever the reason for it then it's inevitable that there are going to be crimes of acquisition. People are going to acquire goods and services, they're going to buy the essentials that they need. Now, not everybody who steals is in that category.
1: Yeah.
0: And there are people who make vast amounts of money out of dealing in drugs, dealing in illicit alcohol, dealing in illicit, illicit diesel, all of those issues. That's a different issue again. Yeah. But it has to be seen in its own context. And to whether or not... You know, in the unequal distribution of wealth and, and income in our society, prison can help in that way. And, of course, the, all the evidence demonstrates it isn't. And you know, it's amazing, isn't it, that some people will say when you're in prison, These, this is the first time I've had three square meals. <laughs> mm, and they're yeah. not square meals, but the food in our prisons is appalling. So that's, the, that, that's one issue. Take the other issue I mentioned, violence against women in our society. How on earth can, can putting a man who has committed an act of violence or several acts of violence against his partner and has ended up in prison. How on earth can an all-male environment running in a vindictive and predatory way possibly help the condition that he has in terms of turning on his the person who is closest to him and who is a woman? So, you know, they're just two examples. I could I could reel yeah. out all of the or all of the examples, but for me, the question is, how do we deal with crimes of acquisition? You know, how do we deal with property crimes? Do we deal with them through imprisoning? There's no deterrence. It's been demonstrated over and again. Or do we deal with it by thinking about how we distribute income and wealth within our society? Mm-hmm. How do we deal with a crime of violence against women? Do we deal with it by locking up men? No, it hasn't in any way altered the amount of women who suffer at the hands of men actually while we're sitting at this table today. We have to deal with it by challenging patriarchy, by challenging male power and male violence within our society. That can't be done in a prison. Putting guys into an all-male environment, which in itself becomes predatory and almost gang-oriented, means that that guy will never come out of his cell. He knows he's going to get beaten because he committed an act of violence against a woman. Yes. So if you see what I'm trying to get at, it's about saying we have to turn the whole thing on its head and say, in each of these specific instances, how do we deal with the complexities of the lives of people? and we don't do it inside the walls of a prison. That's why I'm a penal abolitionist. It has to be done in the community, and it has to be done by resourcing appropriate facilities, which will, as all of the research demonstrates, particularly in Scandinavia, is cheaper than holding a person in prison, where it's costing us up to £1,500 a week to hold a guy in prison who's being locked down for 23 hours, who's eating appalling diet, Appalling that they're fed on less than two pounds a day, you know,
1: yeah.
0: um, where they are in an environment that is likely to actually create a stronger dynamic, either in terms of violence or alternatively will send that person in completely into a shell and maybe will lead to them taking their own lives.
1: Okay, Phil, I, I see that you're coming from a point of passion here. And so let's talk a little bit more about what you just said. You've talked about opposing the penal system as it currently stands, and you also referred to the Scandinavian prison system. In theory, could a more just and safe prison system with better living conditions, something like that Nordic model you, um, you mentioned, rehabilitate long-term prisoners? Would you recommend that these kinds of measures be implemented in the U.K. system?
0: yeah I mean, I think it's a, a really important and significant question, particularly as we do have models that that quite clearly demonstrably work um what we're trying to do is in in terms of those that those very few people who are held in prison for very long prison sentences is to say that there will be light at the end of the tunnel you will be coming out one day. How do we best prepare people for that if if our society says that We have to have long-term sentences and hold people for 20 years. What are we going to put in place during those 20 years that helps the gradual habilitation, not rehabilitation? We want people to come out Habilitated to the society in which they enter. If you go into prison in 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 1980, for example, when you come out in 2000, it's a whole world different. Yes. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that's changed in that time. So, how during that 20 years do you put in place appropriate conditions and appropriate learning and appropriate understanding of the society that you're going to be habilitated or habituated into when you leave? And remember as well, a lot of a lot of those men and women. They and there's very few women in this situation, but nevertheless, there are. They will have families, they will have relationships, they're going to come out of prison. Maybe they go into prison and their children are children, uh, their, their children are young. When they come out of prison, their children might have children, you know. So, you have to look at ways that you can accommodate that long sentence, uh, and that to me is really crucial. Um, one of the One of the points that you made in the questions that you sent to me, and I do want to touch on it because I think it's important, is the question you asked about life sentences. People say, how does somebody come out after 20 years who was given a life sentence? It's a misunderstanding of what a life sentence means. What a mandatory life sentence means is that you will remain on licence. You will still be a prisoner of the state, even when you come out of prison. So you might be considered uh, it might be considered appropriate for your release at 20 years. And you come out after 20 years, but you're, li- you're out on license. You're licensed for the rest of your life. You're still a prisoner of the state, but you are living in the community. Okay. So what we're looking to and what's important for this very few numbers, these I keep stressing these are very few numbers of our prison population, is that we build into the system an appropriate way of accommodating, not to punish them, but to actually assist in developing them as people who will come out adjusted to the society in which they live and the relationships in which they have. Now, I have worked with some of these men and a couple of women who are in this situation, the most famous being Jimmy Boyle. I'm a friend of Jimmy Boyle's. He wrote two books on on the Scottish system, the films made about him, etc. Jimmy Boyle goes from a a guy who was convicted of gangland crime in Glasgow, uh, never convicted of murder, but convicted of, 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 of a whole series of, of very serious offences, mm-hmm. who goes into prison, who, wh- who is treated appallingly by the guards, beaten regularly. There are, in his book, he describes the most horrendous, um, the hor- horrendous uh, beatings that he took. And that was all done out of spite. That was all done because of what he was supposed to have done mm-hmm. in the Glasgow community. Jimmy Boyle then takes up sculpture. He has psychotherapy. He eventually he eventually uh, uh, marries his psychotherapist, okay. Sarah Trevanian. He comes out of prison. He sets up a trust. That trust is to help people with chronic alcohol and drug addiction. He becomes celebrated as one of the great sculptors in, in, in the 20th century in Scotland. And he works in the Gateway Exchange, and I'm privileged to have worked with him there, in developing uh, alternatives to custody. Okay. So there is the living embodiment of a guy who should have been, if it had been me, would have been so embittered by the beatings he took from the guards in prison. He, in this book, it describes the appalling, the appalling treatment that he received. Yet he comes out of prison and devotes his life to others. Now, my, my point about this is that I never give up on anybody. What that means, however, are two things. First of all, that there are some people, a very, very small minority, who can never be released again. Yeah. They're so dislocated in their, in, in their mind, they're so pained, they're so damaged, that if they were to come out of prison, they couldn't live a normal life. And sadly, they have to be held in some form of custody. We don't have to call it prison, but some form of protective custody for their own and others' um, um, best ends. Okay. But they are a very, very small minority. They're, they're less than 0. 0.001%. Yes. Everybody else is going to come out at some point, unless you're in the United States. So what you put in place is really is crucial i was talking to a guy in um, one of the prisons in scotland and i said to him he 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 he'd, he'd, he was in for murder he had a wife and three children he'd never committed any other offenses before he was a lovely man and i was talking to him and he'd done a degree we'd well, done a, 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 a scots highest and he'd done a degree then he'd done a writing course and he'd done all of this in the first seven years of his, statement, of his sentence. The recommendation for the judge was you shouldn't even be considered for release for 20 years. He was a life sentence prisoner. And by life, it means that you will be reviewed at a certain amount of time. Yes. But you'll then be licensed for life. So it wouldn't be reviewed. 20 years. So he said to the governor, look, I've done everything I can. I'm registered for a PhD. You know, I love my family. My family love me. I've got another, at least another 10 years to 12 years before I'll be considered for release, let alone be released. What can I do? And the governor looked at him and said, son, I blend with the wallpaper. In other words, put your life on hold for the next 10 years. You've done everything you should do. You're ready to be released. It's clear now. But because the judge in the court gave you mandatory period, you can't come out till then. So blend with the wallpaper. He was going to be there while his children became adults. He was going to be there while his children had children. He was going to be there day in, day out, knowing that he'd done everything he could. They described him as a model prisoner. Now, when you confront it, as I am often in my research, with that kind of a story, you know, I look at it and I think this is a tragedy waiting to happen. You know, what is going to be the consequence of him trying to blend with the wallpaper when he's done so much, when his hopes have been raised so high Mm -hmm. and then they're just cut from underneath him? What's he going to get caught up in? in terms of all sorts of things going on inside, the bullying and so on. So, to me, that story shows that we have to move towards the Nordic model, where you only imprison those people for very serious offences. We call a medium-term sentence uh, four to five years. They call that a long sentence. We call um, 20 years a long sentence... They don't even conceive of 20 years. Now, what that means is that the tariff, i.e. the amount of time that you're given to serve in prison, has to be considered in terms of what you're going to do with that time. That's the the point of my story. Okay. What are you going to do with that man or woman during that, or boy during that time? Imagine being a 16-year-old who's convicted in the Deep South in the United States and life means life. You know, you took a life at 16 and you will never come out again. That is death. That is execution by time rather than execution um, by injection. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 point from my, the point I'm trying to make is there has to be hope. For the majority of prisons, I've said, of course, I want to be clear on it. That some people cannot ever be released because they're so dislocated and disengaged. The vast majority of our of, of our prisoners would not go to prison, in Norway or or Sweden. They would serve, um, their sentences in the community with community-based sentences set up for them. That, they're, that they're, And that is where we have to start. We have to start by, by not sending so many people to prison, but we have to put in the community appropriate facilities for their problems to be met and dealt with. It's not an easy option, and I don't mean them going out picking up litter off the canal banks or whatever. It's not an easy option. It's actually about putting in place because they are tomorrow's responsibility, yes. putting in place the appropriate material, uh, economic, physical conditions to give them a life, which means that their, their, their current situation will be challenged. They have to work for that. They're, they they will be on probation. They will be supervised. They will have regular meetings with their officers. And they will, in those situations, work Maybe on developing trades, developing skills, um, skills, acquiring skills in the community. The irony of all of this is it's been demonstrated that it's cheaper than putting... putting, When you say to people people who do skills workshops in communities, what would you do with £1,200 a week for each person who walks through your door? They go, oh, my God, that would transform our services. Yes. Exactly.
1: So, unfortunately, we are short of time and we've run out of time. Thank you so much for all that input that you've put in. um, And thank you again for coming out here and and sharing your wisdom with us.
0: It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the interview. And to put in the plug, Linda Moore and uh, Ashreen Wahadin and myself have just uh, published this month, actually, Uh, the new book on alternatives to prison. Um, It's actually an abolitionist book on how we can change the prison system. So there's a little plug. uh, And it's international. It includes it's it's, uh, throughout Europe and uh, also Australia and the United States and Canada. But uh, thank you for the interview and for the opportunity to speak.
1: Thank you. All right. You have been listening to the inaugural episode of Law Pod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University, Belfast. This episode was produced by Rebecca Corbett, Emily Hu, Emma McMillan, and myself, Shirley Alcias. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, who are Jason Jackson and Adam Sloan. Law Pod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Professor Phil Scratton for today's episode. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, go.qub.ac.uk forward slash lawpod. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you can get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Shirley Alcius, and this was LawPod.